0: right, this morning we come to Psalm 73. We're getting close to the end of this little mini-series. Well, many compared to the Psalms, maybe not so many in terms of the number of weeks, but we're going to end up covering about maybe a third of the Psalms by the time we're done. And we're getting into some of the ones that you requested uh, that I preach on. So these are getting to be some of your favorites, and Psalm 73 was one of those that was requested. It's a wonderful psalm. Um, Let me read it for us, and we'll get right into what it teaches us. Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So ends again the reading of God's holy infallible and inerrant word. Let me pray for us as we come before it this morning. O Lord God, as we come before your word again, we ask that you would fulfill your very own promise that you have made, that when it goes out, it does not return to you empty, that instead it accomplishes what you purpose for it, it is successful in the things for which you send it. We pray for us that you would pour out your Holy Spirit this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you, what you would have us learn from your word this morning. In so doing, make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, this we ask, as always, in the wonderful name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever doubt as a Christian? Do you ever doubt? There's a story in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew 17, in Luke 9, and in Mark 9. It's a story that's surrounding Jesus' transfiguration when he goes up on the mountain and is transfigured before the three disciples. But when he comes down from the mountain, he finds a father with a son who's having terrible seizures that throw him into the water, almost even to drown the boy. And the disciples who were there could not heal this boy from his seizures. Jesus remarks about the faithless generation that he sees, but then goes on to heal the boy. And the disciples ask him later, why couldn't we heal this boy? And Jesus says, well, this kind of healing requires much prayer. There's a little bit of variation in how the story is told, which is not unusual in the Gospels, not unusual in life. You tell a story one time, you tell it a little bit differently than another. Different people tell the same story a little bit differently. But there's a bit of a twist. In Mark, which is the shorter Gospel, and usually a summary of things, he expands a little and gives us more detail More detail on the interaction between the father of this boy and Jesus. In Mark, the father pleads with Jesus to heal his son and adds this comment, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus says, if you can. If. All things are possible, he says, for one who believes. And then the father cries out, and what I think is, An incredibly wonderful, poignant statement. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Again, do you ever doubt as a Christian? Here is a father who believes, yet doubts. And I've often felt that that father's cry just captures how I feel at times, especially during the more difficult times of life. I believe. My belief fundamentally is not shaken. But help my unbelief. Help my doubting. It reminds me of a conversation I had, maybe two conversations, close together with my mom when I was in high school and first beginning to even remotely study scripture. Um, one conversation was about predestination and election, and she says, well, are you a fatalist? No, Mom, I'm not a fatalist. Um, but either the same conversation or later, she, she asked about doubt. Is it right for a Christian to doubt? And I remember, I don't remember the details so much as I remember the impression I had walking away from this conversation with my mom. Now, if you know my mom or met her, <laughs> she did not often come across as a person who doubts. She had strong opinions and was usually not afraid to express them. But here's a young boy, really, walking away from this conversation with my mom, knowing her to be a woman of great faith, and yet even she harbored doubts from time to time. That was, you might think it strange, but it was encouraging to me that this could be possible for a Christian because. Even though we all doubt, we don't like it. As Christians, it doesn't feel right. We feel kind of ashamed that we're doubting. Why do I bring this up? Because Psalm 73 is a psalm about doubt and about faith and about how faith is recovered even for those who are tempted to doubt the Lord God. Psalm 73 is the cry of a soul that loves God and believes in God, but doubt creeps in. And then how that doubt is, is dealt with. I called the series Divine Soul Music. This is soul music that ultimately should be comforting to us, assurance for us as Christians. But also for non-believers, it's an example of what real Christianity looks like. If we really looked like this to people around us, could they call us hypocrites? If we were honest with the things that we're dealing with and going through, we're not perfect servants. We have our struggles just like any other people. So there's benefit in this psalm, both for God's people and for those examining the faith. What I want to do this morning is is pretty simple. Talk about the outline of this psalm, and as I go through the outline, uh, cover some lessons along the way. You might note in your, in your Bible that uh, before Psalm 73, it says Book 3. This is the third book of the five books, collections of Psalms. We don't know who arranged them this way, but, but it's part of uh, the scriptural text. If you remember the uh, introduction to the Psalms, Book 1 seems to be about God's righteous people, Book two seems to be about the conflict between the righteous and the wicked, echoing Psalms one and two. Here in book three, we get to a a collection of Psalms. Some people call them the Psalms of lament, but they're they're Psalms that deal with the struggles of life and the difficulties that God's people have. And it ends in Psalm 89 with this Psalm that asks God, it's written probably four or 500 years after David was king, where is this king that you promised David? Where is this son that you promised David, who would sit on the throne forever? Why are we where we are at? So book three is is, is very personal and very poignant as a collection of psalms, and Psalm 73 leads it off, I think, uh, very well. The outline, uh, five parts to the outline. Verse one is kind of an introduction, simple declaration of faith in God and a good God. Verses 2 through 15 are a long section where the psalmist doubts. He's questioning things. And the source of his doubt is the prosperity of the wicked. The third part, third point, third section is verses 16 and 17. This is where the psalm turns. Things change. It takes some examination. This is the fourth part in verses 18 to 22. The psalmist stops and reflects on the situation. And then in verses 23 to 28 at the end, he gives praise to God and rejoices once again, an extended declaration of faith. So let me just go through these different sections. Verse 1 is real simple. A declaration of faith in God, in the goodness of God. How, How many of you said the prayer before meals when you were growing up? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Food. I got in trouble if I said food. (laughs) Um, Simple prayer, but yet profound. God is good. And that's what Asaph is saying in this psalm. God is good to Israel, to his people, who are pure in heart. It's a simple declaration of faith, but I think these simple declarations are worth remembering and worth making. Even one simple like the Apostles' Creed. What What this first verse tells us is that the psalm is written from the point of view of a believer in God. This is someone who knows God, knows God is good, trusts God, and trusts in his goodness. So we're not talking about just a generic person. This is a believer, this is a follower of God. It's Asaph, he's the leader of the musicians in the temple appointed by David himself. But then doubt comes in in verses 2 to 15, which has two little subparts. Verses 2 to 12, the, the psalmist, the believer, is looking at the wicked and is in great distress because of what he sees. But then in verses 13 to 15, he kind of turns inward and looks at himself and despairs as well. So 2 to 12, the doubt begins as soon as the righteous man looks at the wicked and sees their prosperity. And I think we should stop and and acknowledge that this is real prosperity, Um, not apparent. Sometimes we try to sugarcoat this reality as Christians. The wicked really aren't prosperous. They really aren't successful. No, they are. They succeed, they get wealthy, they get rich, and that bugs us if we start to look at it and dwell upon it, as the psalmist does. And we don't like it because it runs counter to our expectation. If we follow God, and God is good, then things should be good for us, too. This is the question asked in Psalm 37. It's the question asked by the whole book of Job. Why are these bad things happening to Job? We don't like it, and so we try to, well, they're not really prosperous. They're not really successful. They don't really enjoy it. No, they do. They like it. They're having fun. <laughs> look, at the, look at the videos you see. Look at the pictures you see. Look at the stories you read. They're enjoying themselves. Now, we can comment on that and what it really is uh, in another venue, but they really are prospering, and we shouldn't deny that or try to, to make it seem like what it isn't. Psalmist doesn't see what he wants to see the destruction of the wicked, their suffering. He sees a different picture. There are no pangs, no, no physical torment that they suffer until they die. They're fat, they're sleek, they're healthy. They don't have the troubles that other people have, they're not stricken like others. In verse 5, in verse 6, this leads them to have incredible pride. They're violent toward others, and there's no consequence, so they might as well be violent and harmful to others. I love uh, the the imagery of verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They're so bursting with pride and greed and lust that, that their bodies are just swelling up. They threaten others. They speak ill of others in verse 8. They speak ill of heaven itself in the pride of their strutting tongues, it says in verse 9. They're so wicked, but so successful in their wickedness, that other people confirm them in it in verse 10. And find no fault in them. Even God's people, who does this? His people, God's people, even God's people are tempted to look at them and say, well, they must be doing something right. Maybe we should copy what they do. That's not an unfamiliar story in the church today, is it? Copying the world around us? Verse 11 describes them as flaunting what they do in the face of God. He must not know what they're doing. Because he, isn't doing any, because he isn't doing anything about it. And then finally, the conclusion. In verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Depressing. <laughs> to focus on this and to see this reality around the psalmist. They're uncomfortable again. We don't like to see wickedness prosper. We don't like to see it go without consequence or punishment tempted to dismiss it as an exaggeration on the part of the psalmist, or maybe just temporary, they'll get theirs. Or maybe their success is only apparent, it's not real. But again, I think this is just a little bit foolish. True in some cases, but not in all. Again, just look at the world around you. Almost everywhere you look, in business, in politics, in entertainment, in sports, wicked people are prospering greatly. And they predominate in their prosperity. There's more of them prospering than there are of us. It's kind of pathetic in a way when we Christians see one of our own succeed. Oh, look at him, he's successful. We're so happy about it. It's just kind of, it's kind of pathetic, you know? <laughs> it doesn't do us any good to rationalize away the real prosperity that wicked people experience in this life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it. What we have to be careful of as Christians is not to dwell on it with envy. Look at verse 3 again. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is the real problem. Don't be envious of the wicked. Don't forget what Jesus said to the crowds around him? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And what is envy but evidence of a lack of contentment? Lack of contentment on the one hand, but also focusing more on others than on myself on the other hand. We're called to be content, not just with what God gives us in this life, but to be content with God himself. He is my portion, it says later in this psalm. He is my heart, my strength. Jesus tells the crowd in the New Testament reading that we read, don't rejoice in any of these otherworldly things. Be happy that your names are written in the book of life. That's what you should be happy about. We're called to contentment in what God gives us and in God himself. But we're also called to pay attention to our own lives more than the lives of our neighbors. That famous Instruction given to us by Jesus. Take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye. We have a saying in English, stick to your own knitting. (laughs) Pay attention to your own life. Worry about your own life, not about how God deals with and treats others. When we focus on others like this, we fall into the same temptation as the psalmist. We become envious of those around us. Even envious of the wicked, and their success. The result is is striking. Look at how Asaph describes himself in verses 13 to 15. He says, My my life of obedience, my life of, of innocence before God, has been all in vain. Pointless. Worthless. Why did I do this? What did I get for it? Except to be stricken with trouble. To be rebuked. Every day, and that's how people treat us. Oftentimes, what, why do you do this, you stupid believer, idiot, you fool, your your childlike, stupid, irrational faith. Think of the father in, in the story I mentioned earlier. Why does why does my son have seizures? The psalmist complained. Why are others fat and happy? Why do I struggle financially when others are rich? Why is my health so bad when they're so healthy? We've all been there from time to time. We've all got to this point of doubt and envy and frustration. We all get to a point of doubt, even at times asking ourselves, is God real? Is Christianity true? And when others scoff at our faith, again, look at verse 8. They scoff with malice. Threaten Opp- uh, oppression. Suddenly, their rational and scientific explanations for life seem pretty reasonable, seem pretty accurate. We start to have the attitude of verse 10. I don't find any fault in what they're doing. Maybe I can accommodate this to Christianity somehow or to the Bible. Very typical thoughts. But they're also dangerous thoughts. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak of this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist knows if he had spoken out loud to this, if he had talked about this, if he had shared his frustration with others, those others would have been negatively impacted. Even children might hear this and have their faith crushed or weakened We often dabble with trying to rationalize or harmonize unbelief and the success of the wicked around us with our Christianity. And all it does is destroy ourselves. It destroys our children as well. The psalmist doesn't do this, but he recognizes that if he had done so, it would have hurt others. So we come to the turning point, the third section of the psalm in verses 16 and 17. How do we deal with this success? Of the wicked around us? How do we deal with threats of violence? Of the opposition of reason and science to our faith? We try to rationalize it away. Try to accommodate it in some way. That's usually not very successful. We can try to argue with it. Apologetics. I'm going to fight this battle and I'm going to win debates. I've told you some of this in smaller groups. Apologetics... As it's, at least as it's practiced today, is, is usually a waste of time. I don't know how many times I've heard young men, and it's always young men, I don't know why, did you hear that debate? Did you watch that debate? Our guy killed the other guy. And you know what the other side is saying at home? Did you watch that video? Did you watch that tape? Our guy killed that Christian. Nailed him. Both sides always think they win. It's a waste of time. What apologetics is useful for, I think, is building up the faith of those who question. Give them reasons to believe and reasons to have confidence. That's a useful use of it. So there's maybe some help there. But the psalm acknowledges the difficulty of dealing with these things. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. This is hard work. How am I going to get around it? Thankfully, the difficulty is, is temporary. Because it ends in verse 17 when he does, what what does he do? He goes to God's sanctuary. (laughs) He goes to worship. That's the turning point. He goes to worship the Lord God. The simple act of worship turns things around. Because when we go to worship, and when worship is done the way it should be done, it's where we go and hear God's word proclaimed explained. We're reminded of who God is, of what he's done, of the promises he's made and kept, the promises he has promised to keep in the future. And among those promises is the promise of judgment for the wicked. They will get their consequences. They will get their punishment. Worship teaches us these things. It turns our hearts to God. Reminds us to be content in Him. We come to worship and we are, our, our focus is put back where it should be. Not on the wicked, not on their success, not on the things around us, but on God. That's what we're here to do, to focus on Him. Worship changes the attitude of Asaph, the psalmist, and now he stops and reevaluates and reconsiders things in verses 18 to 22. Two things, the ultimate end of the wicked in verses 18 to 20, and his own soul, verses 21 and 22. 18 to 20, the wicked are, in the end, punished by God. They slip, they fall, their destruction comes suddenly. In a moment, they're swept away by terror. They awake as if from a dream, find they're despised by God, and nothing more than phantoms to him. Now that's a powerful description in those verses of something that sounds to me like a nightmare. A description, I think, ultimately of the fate of the wicked as they die. They die fat and happy, rich, wealthy, but in a moment are swept away by the wrath of God. Think of that, think of what that experience has to be like. One moment you're alive, maybe at the end of your life, dying. And your your next moment of awareness is of the judgment of God. That's terrifying. Someone who's a good storyteller could turn that into a story. When we consider others and their relationship with God, That's what we need to remember about them, those who do not believe. Not their success, not their lack of trouble in this life, but what awaits them. And it should provoke two responses, at least, from us. One, it should increase our faith in God. God is just, and justice will be done. But two, it should cause compassion to well up within us for those who face this kind of judgment. Later this later today, read read through eighteen to twenty again. That's not a pleasant description of, of the experience of those who do not know the Lord. So our compassion should well up to to have enough care and concern and love for them to to share with them the good news of the gospel, even those who are our enemies. There's there's a video out there that circulates of, of Penn Gillette, of Penn and Teller fame, the the magicians. He's an atheist. A rabid atheist, if I can put it that way. But he tells a story, and and he's a great (coughs) storyteller, of a man who came up to him after one of his shows and began to share the gospel with him. And he says, I disagree with this guy. I think he's nuts. Um, I, I don't believe God exists, but you know what? I appreciate the fact that he came up to me and had enough concern for me to share this good news with me. Now, I don't believe it. I'm not a Christian. But I have more respect for that guy than the ones who never bother to talk to me. Do we have compassion for the wicked who are about to perish? Well, then in verses 21 and 22, Asaph looks into his own soul. And he's compelled to confession. He admits... That envy led him down this path. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. My soul was embittered. That's the envy that started in verse 3. Brutish and ignorant thinking. He actually says, I was like a beast toward you, God. This is the attitude that David writes about in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. So do you doubt? Of course you doubt. We all doubt. But when you doubt, look inside. Why are you doubting? What's the reason for your doubt? 99 times out of 100, at least, (laughs) there's something that we're thinking about that we should not be thinking about. Something we're dwelling on that we shouldn't be dwelling on. And that distracts us from God, who He is and what He's done for us. When we confess, He forgives. Confession leads to praise in this psalm and in all of life and worship. Now Asaph is comforted. Now he cries out in praise. I'm, I'm with you, God, and you hold my hand. It's like a parent leading along a child. You give me counsel. You receive me into glory. That's my end. That's my destiny. What's to be desired? Riches and success on earth? No, the God of heaven What have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The contentment that comes when we look to God and to God alone. Jesus loves me. I am weak, but you are strong. My flesh, my heart fail, but God is my strength. My heart, my portion, says verse 26. The (coughs) The unfaithful and the wicked will perish, repeated in verse 27. But this is how Asaph concludes. It's good, it's just good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That I may tell of all your works. It's good to be near God. The old, the old movie says it's good to be king. It's really good to be near God. And this is true. God is always near to us. One of the questions is, are we near to him, <coughs> So Asaph's heart turns from being full of envy and bitterness and doubt to being content in the Lord his God. And the turning point is just going to worship God, having his focus reoriented the way it should be, being reminded of simple truths and eternal realities, remembering that God receives his people into glory, those who believe, those who have faith. Note that this psalm is not about obedience. It's about faith. It's about trusting in God. Can find joy in their God. There's a little phrase in at the end of verse 1. God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. We've talked about this as well in the psalms. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He whose heart is pure. Well, that's none of us. For we've all sinned, but one who is pure in heart went before that. And we know that pure one as Jesus Christ. And we know what he has done for us. Doubt? We all doubt. But don't let doubt consume you. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who lived and died and rose again for you and for your salvation. Put your faith in him. You will be received into glory. In the meantime, let this psalm be an instruction for all of us to not dwell on the prosperity, the success of the wicked, of others, but instead look to our own knitting. Draw near to God. As James writes, chapter 4, verse 8 of his letter, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are always present and that we may draw near to you and have the nearness and closeness of our relationship with you confirmed as <coughs> we live lives of faith before you, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are easily distracted by things around us, the success of the wicked the trials and and difficulties of the faithful, this seems to our eyes like to that of of the writer of Ecclesiastes, like vanity. All is vanity. All is pointless. But we know that you make things worthwhile, (coughs) not pointless, but productive. As we look to you, as we consider who who you are and what you've done, and as we seek to live our lives in obedience to you, using the gifts that you have given to us. Uh, Strengthen our minds, strengthen our hearts. We thank you for this word from the Psalms this morning. ask that you would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.